CDC is the only bank devoted exclusively to entrepreneurs, and we're committed to the success of women entrepreneurs and majority women-owned companies across Canada. As a proud partner of the Thrive Podcast, we're here to help you start, grow, or scale your business. Find out more at bdc.ca forward slash women today. Scotiabank is proud to co-present the Thrive Podcast for Women Entrepreneurs. Through the Scotiabank Women Initiative, Scotiabank aims to help advance women-led businesses with access to capital, education, and mentorship. To learn more, visit scotiabankwomeninitiative.com. Your insurance needs are as unique as the work you do and the industry you're in. Having the right protection in place is just the start. There's so much you can do to mitigate risks to your business for today and as you grow. At Sovereign Insurance, we're here to help with valuable information, insights, tips, and tools to help you protect your operations. Visit SovereignInsurance.ca to learn more. I landed a contract in Italy, but I need five freelancers to make it happen. I said, sure, let's chat over coffee. With Export Development Canada, risk doesn't stop you. EDC, take on the world. You're listening to The Thrive Podcast on the Startup Canada Podcast Network, where we help women entrepreneurs start and build thriving businesses. On The Thrive Podcast, we connect you with leading experts, entrepreneurs, and organizations that provide capital, mentorship, training, tools, and other support to help you make your vision a reality even faster. This podcast is presented in partnership with Business Development Bank of Canada and Scotiabank. Make your way over to startupcan.ca forward slash podcasts to subscribe to the Thrive community. And subscribe to listen to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. Finally, we'd love for you to rate this podcast and leave a review on iTunes for the chance to have it read on air. We want these shows to impact as many people as possible, and your reviews will help us get there. I'm your host, Gomal Minhas, founder of CoreSpace, your one-stop shop for all things work, wellness, and impact. Visit kaur.space to find out more. I'm also the producer of Dream Girl, the documentary film showcasing the lives of inspiring and ambitious female entrepreneurs that we premiered at the Obama White House. I'm so happy to be here today. Welcome to the show. Sharon Yangueso is an international digital communications and inclusions consultant. Sharon specializes in designing digital experiences for diverse audiences. Sharon's work is centered around using design principles to solve inclusion in organizations, community initiatives, and projects by helping to advance their visions for inclusivity from aspirations to action. Through her work, Sharon's goal is to position marginalized groups and individuals as powerful leaders, experts, and meaningful contributors. Sharon has a passion for empowering young women in Africa and women of color in Canada and has centered her career around leveraging digital technology for social good. Sharon currently sits on the board of directors for Ottawa-based social justice nonprofit InterParis, an organization that works to build peace, advance justice, and globalize equality in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and Canada. Welcome to the show, Sharon. Thank you. I'm so happy to have you here. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> we got to have like a good 20 minutes of offline conversation before we're starting here, so I feel like we can just get right into it. Please, dude, let's jump into it. Ask me my deepest, darkest secret. <laughs> so I always like a good origin story. So tell us, what got you into this line of work and um, made you passionate about diversity and inclusion? Yeah, um, thank you, first of all. I feel a lot of pressure to talk about origin stories because this is the, the month of all of the like superhero movies coming out and I have no superpowers, so <laughs> we'll just like try our best here. Um, so getting onto the path of entrepreneurship was one that was unexpected and if anything resisted for me. I come from a family of serial entrepreneurs. Both my parents, I think even right at this moment, are entrepreneurs in Kenya. A lot of my family members are entrepreneurs, either full-time or part-time on the side, having a side hustle, that kind of thing. And I think uh, I was very resistant to coming into this, wor into this world just because I saw the 
tumultuous nature of entrepreneurship and also the inconsistent nature of entrepreneurship. And I just really craved stability. I craved every two weeks a beautiful paycheck with my taxes taken out and, (laughs) you know, just automatic transfers. That was, that's real bliss to me. Um, But I suppose you can only fight these things for so long. Um, Some time ago, I can't remember now, I think it's, we're pushing on two years now, I'd made the decision to step out on my own and take up some projects and some aspirations that I'd had, but, you know, knew that I could really only do them if I was working on my own, if I was working solo. And really what it was at the end of the days, and you'll notice that I didn't say I decided to go out and be an entrepreneur, because if you asked me at that moment if that's what I was going to do, that 100% is not what I'd say I was doing. I was just trying stuff out. Um, But there was sort of a critical moment when I thought to myself, okay, so, you know, this morning you went out into the grocery store and you tried a brand of hummus that you've never tried before. You've, you know tried, you've gone in for job interviews for organizations that you don't know much about before. So you take risks on everyone, but you're not willing to take a risk on yourself. And that was kind of a defining moment where it was like, if I can take a risk on just about anything else, including the hummus I eat, which is real important to me, um, (laughs) I can go ahead and take a risk on myself and just stepping out and not trying to create these buffers between myself and just sort of jumping into it, which included like taking a server job, which was definitely a buffer of me saying that I wasn't sure if I could succeed. And then I just sort of jump in. And the cool thing about entrepreneurship is I think for some people, maybe for traditional entrepreneurs, it maybe doesn't work like this. But for some of us, what tends to happen is you don't realize you're doing it until someone says you're doing it. And then you're like, oh, okay, cool. I can put this on my resume now. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so that's sort of a brief, uh, messy version of how I became an entrepreneur. That's incredible. And I think what there's two pieces I want to dive into further. The first, how did your parents feel when they when you were like, I'm going to do this whole business thing? That's, <laughs> I don't know. I should call them right now. <laughs> I think I've, that's a really interesting question, because like I said, probably what I'm doing right now might not be considered entrepreneurship in the way that, you know, my family, myself, even and a lot of people consider it like I I don't have a storefront. I'm not selling you anything really at this moment. Talk to me in an hour and I might. <laughs> um, but it's not it's not that traditional transactional process that we're used to when we think about entrepreneurship. And so, you know, maybe if I did ask them, I don't know if they would, they'd be like, oh, I thought you were just, you know, working for yourself, but not really. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So it doesn't look, it doesn't look quite the same. I mean, I, I wonder like for yourself, you know, do you place yourself in that entrepreneurship space or do you have trouble sort of thinking, I don't know if I actually fully fit in this or what I'm, I don't know what I'm doing, what I'm doing, what the name for it is. I don't know if you have the same feeling. I think for a long time, I didn't believe I was an entrepreneur because the way I saw my dad and my mom and my family do business was very brick and mortar in Northern Alberta and very, um, yeah, storefront, uh, like physical business, um, transactional in that way. And so when I started getting into digital business, my dad also had the funniest questions. He was like, what do you mean you run an online business? Like, what does that? What is your thing? Yeah. So there's no like product <laughs> transactions. It's like, are you scamming what people? Are memberships? Is this like, what you're doing on the internet, scamming yeah. people? <laughs> and like even on like starting to develop like a stock portfolio and things like that. Like these are things that my dad didn't have the luxury of getting into. Um, and so I think that you're right. Like it took me a long time to accept that I am an entrepreneur and that this is a part of my identity. Mm-hmm. And because it's so untraditional, even from traditional entrepreneurship. And so I appreciate you asking me that, that question and flipping, uh, flipping chairs here. I, I, if I can just say a little bit more, I, I think it's also really interesting. You know, you mentioned particularly that you, you didn't see yourself as an entrepreneur and I'm, I apologize because I'm on this bit where I keep trying to tell, get everyone to go to therapy because I'm in love with it. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, I was having, I am a converted. I feel like I should get a cut. But I was having a conversation with my therapist around, you know, my, my feelings of fatigue and not feeling like they were, they were valuable. And she, she spoke to me and we we're kind of talking about my, my career journey and 
in the past, for instance, when I was in university, I did a lot of serving work. And after, you know, let's say nine, eight, 10 hours of serving, physically I'm tired and I allow myself to be tired and I allow myself rest because I can physically, like my, my fatigue has manifested itself in the, physically, like I can see my feet are sore, I can see they're bruised. When you're working as an entrepreneur, especially because everything is your responsibility, but your your product, your your skill, everything is literally just your brain and who you are acknowledging that fatigue can be very difficult. And like you said, it's a very big, it's partly rooted in the fact that you don't see yourself as an entrepreneur. You don't see yourself as, as something, something or someone that is producing work. Mm. And so even small things like acknowledging fatigue and giving yourself the rest you deserve is, it becomes really tied up in, in more complex understandings of identity and who you are. Absolutely. And I, I center my career around, um, creating work and investing in projects that I wish I had when I was younger. And when I use that phrase, it is that I wish I, as a young South Asian Canadian girl growing up in Grand Prix, Alberta, would have seen myself centered in any story um, around this Canadian identity and North American identity. And so when it comes to business, I feel like it's still something I can, I absolutely struggle with. And that fatigue, the brain fatigue, you're right, isn't just from the work, but from navigating of identity. So what keeps you grounded as you're both navigating identity in your lived body in this very different place and also within your entrepreneurship journey? That's a good question. I feel like I should answer that in 10 years when I have a song. <laughs> <laughs> right? When we've got this figured out, we'll reconvene. Like, oh, we'll <laughs> um, I think, well, first of all, I, I understand it fully as a luxury because if I would have, I, I don't think two years ago me would have said that I, I regularly go to therapy, but something like therapy is, has been so critical to me getting the rest and the grounding I need. And I feel like I didn't fully understand the value of therapy when I wasn't in it, um, mostly because you think you're going to a place to solve a problem, whereas what is happening for me particularly, I mean, different people have different experiences, is that I am I have carved out a space for myself where I'm literally investing and allowing myself to think deeply about a certain a part of myself and my experiences that I don't get the opportunity to think deeply about otherwise. And that's a really big thing. And it is a huge privilege, which honestly, I don't think it should be a privilege. I think it should be accessible to everyone. That and also, I think I'm learning to allow myself to just not do a thing and that is a, that's such a big thing right now especially if you're in an entrepreneurship or a startup or any kind of like you know people love to use the word innovative space is we're so we're so intensely interested in productivity and I can understand why I think people within our age group we live in really tumultuous times when you know nothing is set in stone um, we're, we're constantly even in in full-time permanent positions trying to prove why we should remain there. And so productivity is held up as this sort of marker of why you deserve to be where you are. And so it's really difficult when you're your own worst enemy in terms of you're your own boss. And also we live in a world where, especially for women, like if, again, your brain is your product, you don't get to take that off at the end of the day, put it on the side and then live the rest of your day like you would, let's say, you know, I don't know. I don't want to diminish the work of a chef, but like a chef hat, you know? Um, and so when I finish my work in my day, I still need to continue to use myself. I need to be empathetic. I need to be emotionally available. I need to be all these things. I need to use my intellect to navigate the rest of the world outside of my work. And so learning to give myself space to just do nothing, to say no. Um, I was really excited about going to trivia night on Monday night. Is that last night? Yeah, last night. And I was feeling really crappy. And I was like, I don't actually have a reason. I'm not sick. I don't have the flu, but I don't feel great. And just being able to be like, no, even no to myself. That, that's a really big part of just keeping myself together, I think. I'm a huge proponent of um, empathy-based leadership and uh, working with an empathy framework in mind for ourselves. And uh, it's so important to work differently now. Like, I feel like there's the structures, like this pace that we've all prescribed to is wildly unsustainable. And we're seeing especially millennial burnout. And, um, you know, there's certain things like there are more women in our generation that are dying of heart disease than any generation before us. And so it's like, 
before this becomes like a widespread issue, we need more conversations like this. And encouraging therapy or also coaching, which I think for some people is more slightly more palatable than saying, I'm going to go to my therapist. I'm going to go to my coach. They're going to help me work through this. But I'm one of those people because traditional therapy didn't work well for me. But um, finding like a mindset coach was really unlocked, unlocked my brain in wild ways. So um, I think just enabling people to know that they can work differently, they can do things on their own terms is so important. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I don't know if you feel the same way or if you'd resonate with this, but I think much like, you know, we're going to dive into a conversation about inclusivity and diversity and much like that, it's really easy to set these standards for yourself to be like, we're going to work differently. We're going to think of productivity as different. But, you know, for instance, you and your shoes who have a, who has a team, who has a business, you know, things you're accountable for a lot of these things. There are, mo- there are those moments when it's difficult to do that. And I think those moments happen a lot more, a lot more a lot more often. I don't know if that's correct English than not. You know, I can imagine for you, like, let's say on a day like today, you're like, I should rest, but also I have 10 hours of work to do. How do I, you know, like, I don't know if you resonate with that. hundred percent. And, and I do talk about this. Um, I penned an essay for, for our publication core space about this empathy based leadership. And part of it was like, I had to, I had to face a work addiction. I had to like name it for myself and be like, this is, this is my truth. Like, I don't know how to stop. I don't know when to stop or overwork is rooted in me from seeing my immigrant parents not be allowed to have breaks, have the privilege of slowing down. And so removing the shame from that equation for myself, because I'm not my parents, they did what they had to in circumstances that are wild wildly different than my own. And they didn't work as hard as they did to see their daughter burn out and crash, which I experienced some intense illnesses a few years ago. But so when I have those moments now where I'm like, I need to put a 12, 13 hour day. I at least now have a sanity check that comes in and says, but do you? (laughs) And that even that little voice is revolutionary. Yeah. I I feel like I need to give a moment for what you just said, because that's that's a that's a big deal to say, like, you know, I I do. I'm going to try and articulate this well, but they did this for me so that I don't have to do this for myself or the people that come before me, after me. And that's a big deal. I should, I just want to give that a moment of its own. Um, but you're absolutely right. And it's funny because sometimes I talk to people who <clears throat> have parents who are immigrants and sort of situate themselves in a world where they're like, I... I need to succeed because of the work that they put in. I live in a weird limbo where I am, I, I am the immigrant. <laughs> I am the immigrant parent without children. <laughs> um, <laughs> but my, my parents, you know, they, I don't come from a wealthy background by any stretch of the imagination, but there was a lot of sacrifices to get me here as a student and to keep me here as a student, which didn't always work out well. And so there's also that, that pressure, which comes from no one but me and yes, the world, but you know, mostly the voice in my head, which is like, there has been too much put down on the table for you not to succeed. Um, I, I follow, I don't know if you know her, Amina Tussauds. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and she, I can't remember if it was in her a podcast or, or uh, something she penned for Forbes, but she, she said that for a lot of immigrants and children of immigrants, you know, there is no, there's no fallback plan. There is no, you know, if I fail, it's, you, you do the thing and then you succeed and there's not a whole lot of room for failure just because there is no backup plan. There is no, like, for instance, for me, you know, like when I graduated university, some of my friends would joke, you know, worst case scenario, I'll move back in with my parents. I'm like, I have no one. <laughs> I mean, obviously I don't have no one, but like, if this doesn't work out, like, I don't know, man, I, I'm going to have to like do something. I'm going to have to be a good dancer or something. Cause I'm going to have to figure this all out. <laughs> and so there's, there's, that added pressure that is, I don't think, uh, you know, women of color, I don't think women of color, I don't think immigrants, um, people living in the margins of society should feel pressured to sort of step into this role of, no, now I'm Zen. Um, I think we need to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt of understanding that we don't live in a world that we structure and we don't live in a world in which we were assumed to be human beings who were meant to survive and thrive. And so there's a lot working against us. And when you feel these pressures, 
they're not just in your head. They're they're very real and you are fighting an uphill battle and that's okay. It's okay to feel like most times you're not doing the best thing for yourself, but it's just about sort of figuring out what version of that best thing for yourself is within the confines of of these like power structures that we exist in. Mm. I let's get into it. Let's get into the inclusion conversations because I had someone come to me uh last month, um, who was the only person of color in their executive team, um, ready to quit. And they were ready to quit because there was a social media situation that, that happened around diversity and inclusion. And the representation that the organization did was, was really poor. And this person felt like the burden of responsibility for moving the dial and dialogue forward on diversity and inclusion in the workplace was on her, but that's not her job. She's there to be the executive that she was and and in the position that she was in. And my advice to her was you have to take space for yourself. Like there is only one you and for your own sanity, um, safety, well-being, like quitting is not the right option right now, but taking time for yourself and knowing that there are people out there who like yourself who are experts in diversity and inclusion who come into co- spaces and do this work to help organizations see their blind spots, but that the employees who are the only ones, this is not necessarily their burden to take on. So Tell me, tell me what that is, what that's in you, like, because just how you shared that now, it's like we get to choose how much of this we take on, Mm -hmm. how much of this burden and responsibility we take on to shift organizations that weren't made for us. Um, And I appreciate that we can be candid here. And this might be the first time some of our listeners are hearing this dialogue in in this candid of a way. So we appreciate you holding space for this conversation and and educating yourselves. But Sharon, tell us what what are the what's? Um, Well, first of all, to your friend, if, you know, off the record, I'd be like, set it all on fire. No, (laughs) but that's what people around her were telling her. And it was, it was grounding her in her, in, in that, in what was really true for her. Yeah. Um, so I think I'll start with just kind of that antidote. I feel like a good place to start is the difference between diversity and inclusion. And that sort of will feed into why I don't call myself, for instance, a diversity right. expert. I noticed that no. in your bio and here I am saying <laughs> no, no, diversity I mean, I, and inclusion. They're sort of like, I don't know, they're like cousins who see each other often, but like aren't like the best of friends. But, you know, they'll eat together. It's fine. So I don't mind being coupled to those two things. So for me, and I mean, I'm not Oxford Dictionary or whatever you get your definitions from Google or Urban Planet. I don't know. Um, but diversity to me is, you know, having a diverse group of people in any space, in any room, sharing whatever, just operating in a space. So, for instance, you could say the world is diverse. You know, the people in this office are diverse. Like diversity, I think especially when you're talking about workspaces, to be honest, diversity is not difficult. Diversity is an easy sell. I like to say diversity isn't hard because everyone likes jobs. Everyone likes having money. Everyone likes being able to pay rent. It's honestly great. Personally, I recommend it. Um, Diversity is fine. It's not difficult bringing people into the room. Inclusion, though, inclusion is, I think, the critical piece because it's creating the the mechanisms and creating the space and developing the functions and the structures within a space or within an organization so that diversity can thrive and diversity is useful because just having people in a space but not having the qualifiers and make it so that they can be happy they can be healthy they can contribute they can lead they can showcase their expertise and for instance in the example of your friend they can do the work that they're trained to do and that they're experts at doing without having to be the voice for all of the people within their within their subgroups. That's 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 what I like to call diversity for PR. Just having people in the room to say they're there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so now leading into sort of why that is really critical for me is I often don't think I need to be brought into any organization, any team, any project to tell people to be diverse because A, we have that language all around us. We're, we're in a really cool, interesting time in, in our history as a society where there are certain words that are being said over and over again and people are getting comfortable and familiar with certain language that hasn't really happened in a long time. And so something like diversity isn't a new concept to a lot of people. I think, you know, everyone can understand why... I I don't want to make assumptions, but most people can understand why there's value in having a lot of different people in a space that, you know, there's value in a lot of people's experiences and and 
ideas of the world. And the great thing is also we have a lot of research to back that up. We have a lot of studies and, and you know, just really great data to back up the value of having people from different backgrounds. Now, what I think people, what I think organizations, projects, programs, where they they trip a little bit is on that inclusion piece. Um, I like to think about it like if diversity is a picture, you know those like team pictures, like this is all of our people with all of our women and all of our not white people. Exciting. <laughs> Look at our great picture. That is the picture of, that is diversity. Inclusion is stepping away from the picture and getting a really great understanding of, okay, who took the picture? How did everyone get there? Were there chairs for those who had invisible disabilities and couldn't stand through the entire photo shoot? What, what room was it in? Who, who was allowed to come in late? Who wasn't? You know, what, I don't know, what what were people wearing? Were there requirements? That's inclusion. It's understanding that everyone is coming in from a very different um, background, from different spaces, from different experiences. And it's important that we are accounting for the power and the privilege and the inequality that all of us benefit from in one way or another. Now, I think what what I came across when I first started um, kind of getting the language and the understanding of power, privilege, diversity, inclusion, what I call my, my baby activist stage, you know, we all go through a baby activist stage where we, we argue with people on Facebook. <laughs> We're not, no, exactly, none of us are proud of that time in our lives. But what I came to understand was that I think that is that is a heavy there's a heaviness in all of that and bringing that for instance in professional spaces um with with folks who just literally because of their privilege because of the world they live in have never really had to think twice about these types of things and for that reason maliciously or not they're just not inclined to make any changes because as far as they're concerned they're they're comfortable and so what i came to what i came to this sort of type of work was me working within um, building digital experiences for youth, for women all over the world, and understanding that in the work I did as a digital communications consultant, as a you know a digital communications expert, I had to make I had to build solutions all the time. I had to build solutions and I had to build experiences for people whose life, whose backgrounds I I didn't have insight into. For instance, I might be a woman, but I'm not a Jordanian 18-year-old woman. So me building a digital experience for her, I needed her input, I needed her insight. I needed to know exactly what is the problem because I can't be defining that for her. And so what I started to do was much like most, you know, many people who have come before me and will come after me who work in comms and uh, design and startup space, they use design thinking frameworks. And these frameworks are built with the purpose of creating solutions with a human-centered focus, creating solutions for problems that aren't easily, easily definable or even identifiable. And it's going through this process where you're brainstorming, you're building with the people you're trying to impact or include or, you know, or work for, like you're literally in service of them and what they identify as their, solu- as their solutions and also their problems. Um, and so having those two worlds come together and just seeing this need to have a more practical way of tackling the gaps I saw in a lot of the spaces I came into where, for the most part, maybe there wasn't a conversation about diversity and inclusion that was happening, but people just weren't sure about where to go. I don't think a lot of people realize when they share a room with people who come, again, who live in the margins of society and they share a room in those types of workshops, we all laugh about it. But there's a different type of laughter for some of us where it's just like, oh, great, okay. Okay, this this again. I mean, it's it's comical, but it's comical in a really like depressing way. Um, And so I thought, okay, these two things can work because I am accustomed to building solutions, not just by the power of me having a big brain, but because I'm using this process that is tried and tested. And also I constantly exist in spaces and work in spaces and operate in spaces where they're not approaching the challenges of inclusion with a solutions-based mindset. It's more just like, well, let's talk about it and then hope for the best. And so these two things, you know, 
kind of had a beautiful wedding. There were flowers. Everyone came. No one objected. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how, you know, this idea of design thinking plus inclusion was born. Okay. So when we are trying to encourage people to have a solutions-based mindset when they are looking at inclusion, what advice would you have for, um, we'll start with folks who are starting their businesses, to build a business with inclusion as a core pillar of that new startup or recently started startup? Okay. <laughs> okay. So, you know, you're an entrepreneur, you're, I'm going to go ahead and just, you're wildly successful. Like you're, you've done great things for yourself and for the people around you. Now I have to ask you, especially towards the beginning, let's say when your team was literally you, you were the team, maybe, I don't know, a partner, maybe a pet was part of that team. Were you sitting there being like, how can I make me the team and anything and anyone that comes maybe in the future as inclusive as possible? Was that something that was going through your mind? In my first business, not not as much, but because of my experience after that with invisible illness and uh, chronic illness, it became centered in my second company because I had to accommodate for myself as employee number one for work. Mm -hmm. So I felt shame around that. And I had to be like, okay, how do I make this better for other people if they have similar experiences? Um, and I ask you that. Thank you for, for <laughs> indulging me. And I ask you that because especially for folks who are starting a business, and that's most of the time women start businesses that aren't that don't scale right at the beginning. Like most of the time your team is you, maybe someone else. And so thinking about inclusion, like you said, might come in if if you particularly have had some type of experience that forces you to think about how can I make this space as um as functional as possible for someone with, you know, the experience that I'm going through, but we don't think about it because it's just us. But I think the important thing is to start thinking about it right at the beginning. It, it feels a little strange. It feels like, you know, your feet are too big for these, are too small for these shoes. But I think it's also part of really investing yourself and thinking like, no, I'm planning on scaling. Oops, sorry. I'm planning on making this big, like, you know, I don't know if I can curse, but like, I'm going to be big shit in a hot while, right? And I need to start thinking that way. And so that goes so far as even just for yourself. Like you were saying, like, I live with an invisible illness. What does that mean? How can I build how can I build structures within my business, within what I'm creating to ensure that should anyone else come in, they are met with a space that is collaborative, that allows them to thrive, to lead, to have their voice heard in a way that it doesn't cause discomfort or cause them to, to be this wildly different version of who they are. And that is so critical because at the end of the day, you are going to start doing that, you know, going through that process of, for instance, hiring. And like I said, everyone loves a job. So, you know, you smack that up on Indeed and you're going to get applications, even if you don't say open to all of them, <laughs> even if you don't have that standard line, people will apply. But once they come in, inclusion, that's when inclusion starts, because the trouble with diversity, like I said, diversity is great, but Retention, retention happens with inclusion. If you're building the structures into your organization and solving for the things that will come up, because design thinking and any kind of design thinking framework that you apply is by nature iterative, which means that there's going to be different versions of it as they go. It's not that you, you know, hire me. I go through a workshop with you, you tie it up in a bow, I give you a pat on the back, we, you know, sip champagne and then you're done. No, mm -hmm. it's like an iterative process. And I'm going to give you the tools you need to continue to go through that process of self-assessment to, you know, be, to journey map, to empathy map, to think, is this, is this space exactly what it should be? Is it conducive to the most capable people doing the greatest version of their work? Mm. And I think that's so important because people at a baseline want to work for organizations like that. Yeah. It's not just people of color or women who want to be in empathy based uh, or like leadership organizations. Yeah. Everybody wants Everyone. to feel exactly. seen in their work. Exactly. So it's like if we create spaces that have inclusion first as a mandate, it's going to impact the entire 
every employee that's in your company. And I think that's something for people to reflect on. It's like, you aren't doing this just as a way to involve people who might feel othered to you or um, have conversations that might scare you. Like that's you centering yourself in the dialogue. And I watched the Brene Brown special that's on Netflix. And in the last third of it, she talks about daring to lead. And she talks about how conversations, it's a privilege to feel uncomfortable with a conversation and that you can't, you have to have those conversations in spite of that because you're just centering yourself in that dialogue by being like, that's too hard a conversation for me to have. So I'm just not going to do it. Like we need leaders who are willing to dare and be courageous and move out of the center of the story. Absolutely. And I'm going to just jump off what you said in that last piece, which is move out of the center and just sort of touch on two things there. A big part of, um, what I'm a proponent for, you know, I'll definitely come into an organization. I'll work with you to sort of identify where we need, you know, where there might be a problem, where we need to pull out solutions. We can brainstorm, we can prototype, create a solution, try and make it work, and then, you know, keep keep iterating. But the thing that, you know, sometimes I might say, sometimes I might not say to a client, and but I will say to everyone listening right now, is there is a per, there's a part of this process that I think we all and you all need to be the ones to to spark, which is doing the uncomfortable thing of thinking, do I need to be the person at the center of all this? Mm. I think everyone, I'm going to assume everyone who's listening, you, me, we're all talented in one way or another. We're all capable. We're all good at what we do. We work hard. And that's not to take away from any of that. But again, we all come to where we are because of a level of privilege, because of a level of inequality. And so when you're in a space where you're, for instance, trying to build up a solution for how to make this space as inclusive as possible for, let's say, someone with a learning disability, you know, I need to step back and say, that's that's not something I've ever had to grapple with. Do I really need to be the person to be leading this conversation? I can facilitate the process so that the people who are best capable of leading this conversation and best lead a solution have the tools and the resources and the, and the support and the participation they need. But that doesn't, I don't need to be the one who's doing all of the things mm-hmm. because this isn't, I'm, I'm not, I'm not the most equipped to do it. But at the same time, and this is where that sort of, um, that interesting dance goes, it's also not on them to solve it. This is my organization. It's theirs too, but this is my baby. And it's not their responsibility to solve it. They can give me the time and the energy that they feel is most valuable to them. Um, I need to create spaces in which when they've, when they can't do any more, they, they can step back. I need to make sure it's understood that this isn't a requirement for their job. Like I'd love their input. I'd love to collaborate with them, but that's just it. I'm looking for their collaboration, not their validation, not a pat on the back. And so it's a really interesting, it's a thin line to be honest. And I think that's why empathy and collaboration is so important in this process because you need to be talking to each other. You need to be checking in with each other. And it's just good business. I mean, this might be a little bit over the top, but I like to tell people, you can either invest in inclusion or you can invest in a kitty fund for, like, a lawsuit. Mm. <laughs> I mean, whatever, whatever you suits know, you. Whatever suits you. But I, I personally recommend the first one because it's good business. It means less turnover. It means you have the best people doing the best work. It means everyone's having a good time. It means you're like, I don't know. Hitting your bottom line and maybe even exceeding your best expectations. That honestly, with inclusion first as our policy in my company, like we are, we're trailblazing in a way I didn't know was possible. And it's wild to be able to be like a core reason for that is the inclusion first, which was centered on my shame and inability to accept my lifestyle around work and what needed to change. And so like, I hope this validates for some of our listeners that if you have to work differently, or if you require uh, hard conversations in your workplace or within your business, or you've had a hunch that you need to lead slightly differently, like go for it. Like this is good. This is a great thing for you to do. So my next question for you, we talked about the startup and how 
to build from the beginning an inclusive business. But now you're, say we're in these larger, more established organizations where um, diversity is still for the picture and they're looking to move towards inclusion. What can they do to get there? Um, I think first and foremost, that depends on where you exist in an organization. If you're someone who has the power and the access to make those decisions, wonderful. If you're not, you know, that that's a little bit different to navigate, but I can definitely support that to, you know, kind of answer in both ways. First, I'll start by saying that with bigger organizations that are established, that have scaled, that have a big team, sometimes the the issue that comes up is matters like inclusion and even for the sake of it diversity are like foo-foo matters <laughs> they're like I mean I guess that's nice but it doesn't it's nice to have yeah it doesn't feel critical especially for organizations startups teams where you're doing like some real hardcore stuff like you know you're working in law you're like building I don't know an app or like a robot <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you folks do but I'm sure it's really cool interesting things and you're just like I don't understand where this fits into my work like this won't make my work better we just like the age old thing like we just hire the best people and if they're really they they fit our team then everything works well and so that's sort of the first I think challenge that most people face but I think listen listen to your gut and also have an understanding that inclusion and the 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 space people need in order to thrive doesn't discriminate per industry. It's the same everywhere. Whether you're walking into a bank, you're walking into a yoga studio, wherever you are, the potential for people to be just clinging on by a thread or to be thriving and living their best life is the same all through. And I know that still sounds so foo-foo for some people. They're like, I mean, they can live their best life after 5 p.m. But it's, <laughs> but it's, it's super, super critical. So what, what I would say to those people who are, you know, in, in a bit of a more like a bigger organization that has scaled a little further is, first of all, come to terms with the fact that, A, this isn't your job. You know, you have specific terms of reference, whether you're the CEO or a mid-level employee. (laughs) You know, this is not your terms of reference. And so you're not you shouldn't expect yourself, especially if you're a person living in the margins of society. You shouldn't expect yourself or someone else in your organization who doesn't have that expertise or time to lead that. You know, embrace the fact that you might need to bring someone in and then have a plan, have a plan for how you're going to present that to people. If you're not the one in the decision making position, have a plan. Don't don't I don't recommend stepping in and being like, hey, we need to be more inclusive because for a lot of people that's so intangible. And it, it's like, well, I don't know, then do something to be more inclusive. That's what they'll task it on you. That's ten, that tends to be what happens. And for a lot of people, they're the ones who are struggling the most with an inclusive space who are tasked with doing that because they're the ones who bring it up. Yeah. So, so come prepared with a plan. Give them really, really clear sort of background. Like this is where we're at. This is where our gaps are. And you don't keep in mind that this doesn't need to be set in stone. Like when you have an expert come in, they might work with you to refine what you're feeling, what you're thinking, what you're seeing, or to, to better identify the problems. But you can start that process really quickly on your own, just by identifying like, this is where our gaps are. This is where the potential for, you know, problematic things to happen. This is where the potential, the potential for losing really great employees lies. This is the solution we should be thinking about then from that point on bring someone on like this is what we're here to do we're here to sort of share the burden of of inclusion work so that as we come in we are an unbiased unbiased sort of body coming into the space and then for like for for someone like myself who works with design thinking I'm not going to come in and be like yeah, you know, as I walked in, I saw only four women, so you should probably change that. I'm thinking more of, okay, let's lay it all out. For instance, in in the workshops, I use, again, design thinking frameworks. One of those tools within design thinking framework is like a journey map. So if this is an organization that's already made sort of identified problems, like saying, you know, women who um, are around the 
point in their lives where they start having children, they're leaving and we don't know what we're doing wrong. Then you can be like, okay, let's map this out. Let's map a woman who is X years old, who is at this stage in her life. Let's map her journey with engaging with your organization as an employee. We map that out and then we start sort of cross-checking that journey with critical inclusion um, considerations and start understanding where is it that things go wrong. And then we start narrowing those down to like, are we identifying problems? And then let's work on solutions. We might not tackle every single solution because that's not realistic, but we can decide, okay, this is one thing we want to start with. And then building, building solutions out of that, bringing people into the room who were collaborating with the very people we're trying to design for, working with them, getting solutions, brainstorming, and then really rapidly going into that process of what I call like design sprints. So you're, tr- you're testing out what you're doing as you go. So it's not like we're going to be sort of like twiddling our thumbs for a really long time, trying to think of a solution and then maybe this will work, maybe, this, but just like really rapidly testing it out. Then coming out on the, on the other side of that sometimes painful process, feeling, you know, with a solution that, okay, we can stand behind this. Let's test this out. Let's evaluate it later. And like, that is a process that you as an employee who has things to do, who even as the leader of a team has things to do, has your own bottom line, can't always take up on your own. And so it's really important. I think that's the first step to be like, okay, we need help. We don't even, we can't even fully identify what the problem is, but we need help. Mm, And then to find the people like yourself who are actually doing it and remove the burden from yourself to wait there are experts out there who've got this and I just got to bring them in. I think something I'll also note is like Netflix and Shopify have uh, now verticals in their HR departments that are focused on diversity and inclusion within their organizations. And so you can, as part of that roadmap that you bring into your um, boss or your CEO or whatever it is, be like, this is how other organizations are doing it. And this is why it's great value proposition. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm always like, I, I love that you said that because I'm a big I'm a big advocate for when you're trying to get something, you need to speak the language of the people you're talking to. Like, I'm not about to go to like a politician and be like, hey, like, you know what would really make someone who's not voting for you happy (laughs) or like someone who can't vote happy? Like, that's not the language they're speaking, even if what I'm saying is really useful. Like, I need to speak their language. And sometimes that feels a little uncomfortable and it feels like you need to pull out of places that you don't normally, you know, jump into, but speak the language you're speaking. So for instance, if you're saying this is what analogous organizations are doing, this is the industry standard right now. We want to be thought leaders. We want to be knowledge leaders. This is where we need to be. Those are really critical things to to be able to just get. I mean, I feel like that, that works for any, any, it's like general good advice, I think. General pitching advice. General pitching advice. (laughs) This is now a pitching podcast. Welcome. (laughs) You can use that for various areas of your businesses, guys. So my last question for all guests, and thank you first so much for educating us, for sharing so much and so um, uh, deeply about inclusion. And really, I'm very hopeful for this work and for shifts that can happen in organizations because of people with your expertise who offer what you do. So thank you for that. Um, But my last question for you is, what advice do you have for female entrepreneurs to thrive in their lives and their businesses? Mm, It's a big question. I'm going to take 62 years to answer it. So buckle up. (laughs) Um, I'll try and break this down in a couple of pieces here. I think the first one is... When we look around entrepreneurship spaces, especially as women, women who, you know, might be, you might be a woman of color, you might be a young woman, you might be a woman living with an invisible or visible disability, sometimes the version of entrepreneurship that's fed to us as the most innovative, the most interesting, isn't, doesn't feel realistic to us and doesn't feel like it will meet our needs. Um, For instance, in my day-to-day or even just like the moment I set foot in this country as an adult, you know, 10 years ago, the women entrepreneurs that I came across were not running what we'd call startups. They, you know, even for just for the sake of saying it, they weren't the women who, let's say, would be featured on this podcast. Like, I, you know, listening to this podcast, going through all your guests and the guests from the first season, it's a great array of podcasts, but they're also really limited and amazing women. But, you know, there's a there's a prototype there. And 
as a woman going into business and you're you're coming into these into these podcasts into all of these resources where those are the women that are being spotlighted i'd say don't don't be don't be set back don't feel like that's not you and so that's not what you that's not what you need to be doing like I was saying when I first came into this country and even today the women entrepreneurs I most come into contact with are the Congolese woman that braids my hair you know the Tanzanian woman who sells me chapatis you know those are entrepreneurs but maybe they wouldn't be able to exist in these like fancy startup spaces because they're not doing cool things they don't have an app and so for women entrepreneurs the first kind of I'd say something I want to share with you. I don't want to call it advice. I haven't lived on this for long enough to give anyone advice. But what I would want to share with you is that the moment you start sort of making a decision to take a risk on yourself, whether it's full-time, part-time, once every three weeks, whatever, you decide to take a risk on yourself. You decide to value what you can put out into the world and not just value it in that lovely I'm great way, but value it in a dollar and cents way. You're an entrepreneur. Whether you're selling your ideas, whether you're selling your hair butter, whether you're selling whatever, you're an entrepreneur. And it's fine for you to shut that out from the mountaintops. Don't, don't be... Don't be intimidated by what the world looks like today. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the sort of second thing I'd want to share, which sounds super, super counterproductive to everything I just I just said is give yourself the benefit of understanding that you might not exist in the world the same way as everyone else. Much like you said, you know, like you had to go through that process of understanding. I don't know if I can it's not good for me to work X amount of hours. You know, we have so much information coming to us from all different directions. If you need to stop and start, stop and start. If you need to take a hiatus, do it. If you need to pay attention to your kid for X amount of time, do that. Like that doesn't make you any less of an entrepreneur. And then take up, take up as much space as you can when you can. Take up space. We're not trained, I think, as women to take up space. Do it. Go to things if you can. Introduce yourself to people or don't introduce. Just, you know, do sort of take the time to listen to your gut instinct. I like to, I like to constantly remind myself, I don't know if this is too morbid for some people, but I am and all of us sort of right now are the products of the people who survived. Like we live in a world with a history that is filled with death and destruction. And we are the products of the people that survived, both through their own skill or just through luck. And that has to count for something. You come from a line of survivors. Just keep that in mind. Push forward. If you need to stop, stop. Look around. Take in as much as you can. Leave out as much as you want to. And then just do what feels right. Thank you. (laughs) I told you it would take 62 days. (laughs) Oh, only, I think, a couple of minutes. It was beautiful. Thank you so much for your insights, for everything you shared with us, for your wisdom, for your intellect, for your brilliance. Um, We are better for it. Please stop it. (laughs) We're taking up space. You are taking up all the space here because that's what is deserved in this moment. So thank you so much, Sharon. I so appreciate having you here with us and the Thrive Podcast is better because of you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on the Thrive Podcast, where we help women entrepreneurs start and build thriving businesses. Thank you to the Startup Canada production team, BDC and Scotiabank for helping us elevate women entrepreneurs. Visit startupcan.ca forward slash women to download the playbook resources for women entrepreneurs with a comprehensive list of support for you and your business. And visit startupcan.ca for the latest episodes of the Startup Canada podcast hosted by Rivers Corbett. Make sure to visit CoreSpace, K-A-U-R dot space, to learn to better integrate work, wellness, and impact into your everyday life. Until next time, I'm Gomal Minhas. It's time to thrive.